Hello, everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. In this episode, we are going to look at 1991's My Girl, a millennial coming-of-age classic through the eyes of my co-host for today, IndieWire's Kristen Lopez. Plus, in our segment, one quick thing before I go, I'm going to talk a little bit about Spencer, which if you haven't seen it, you should, and it will be making its way through the uh, awards march for the next several months, I'm quite sure. Um, But now, without any further ado, let me give my co-host a proper introduction. She is a critic and TV editor for IndieWire, Kristen Lopez. Welcome to the show. Is there anything else we need to know about you before we get started? Oh, gosh. Uh, so <laughs> I'm... Start at the beginning. <laughs> I'm a, a TV editor for IndieWire, and I'm also a disabled woman, so I write a lot about disability in media. And in my free time, what little free time I have, right. I also do a podcast on classic movies called Ticklish Business. So... I get to immerse myself in the world of what's on TCM and <laughs> things that happened with actors who've been dead for several years. If that, if you think that prohibits me from having thirst issues with them, it does not. <laughs> no, 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 no. You are a child of Twitter. You are a child of the internet. We are all at this point truly, I mean, what is more bipartisan at this point than thirst? Exactly, exactly. Is there only bipartisan issue on the internet? Now, okay, so I think this is, I think your your reference of Ticklish Business and the movies of TCM, while our film today is not necessarily a TCM film, it is it is a period piece. This is a movie set in the 1970s. You have brought us, you know, bless you and curse you for bringing us My Girl, because watching this again, I was like, <laughs> I'm going to fucking sob just like I did whenever the last time was that I watched My Girl, and sure enough, I did. And so, obviously, the impetus of the show is is talking about the characters that make us feel so, that resonate with us so strongly, that make us feel like we have an avatar in them. And you have brought us the heroine of My Girl. And, you know, was this, was this really, was this kind of the first time? Was this, like, the first character that you really latched onto? Or was this just, maybe not necessarily the first, but kind of, like, the strongest early on in your life? You know, it's funny because when when you invited me on to this amazing show, I had many options to choose from because you quickly offered an alternate to this that I was super excited to talk about Booksmart and Molly, which is the Beanie Feldstein character, correct? Exactly. And I was like, Casey, producer Casey, I hope she sticks this with this one. But then when you said my girl, Veda Sultanfuss, I was like, okay, wait, no, this is amazing. This is amazing. Exactly. I will say that was my mom's suggestion because when I told her what I was doing, she said, how dare you, how dare you not include the person that you are, which is from, from this movie. But how dare you betray Veda like that? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. My mom was very upset with me about this. Um, But I mean, I could have, I, I, thought about a couple people you know as a disabled person I thought you know well the obvious thing would be like the first time I felt not necessarily seen but like felt some somewhat something with regards to my disability which would have been you know my conflicted feelings with Forrest Gump sure um, and and Lieutenant Dan but my mom yeah my mom stepped in and said no you need to talk about the person that you've emulated your entire life on and yeah that's that's Veda Saltenfuss. It's very hard for me to find where she ends and I begin 
what part of my life was create, what decisions were made by me yeah. and what decisions were made by me watching this movie at a young age. And I think that probably- speaks so highly of you because Veda <laughs> fucking rocks, man. She, and I, oh. I only think like, you know, sometimes when you watch movies that you love from your childhood, you watch it and you're like, God, the hell was I thinking? You know, I, <laughs> I, I'm not going to name any names, but I watched a movie that I loved in high school recently. And I was like, God, this this is horrible and misogynist. And like, <laughs> the fuck was I thinking when I was thinking this was the apotheosis of cool independent right. cinema? Um, but but Veda is one of those where you can watch this movie at any age and you're like, she's got it down. You know, she really she's, does. She's 11 years old, but no, she knows that she hates people. Um, she knows that death is coming for all of us. She does. Um, you feel like she- Veda, Veda through high school, through college, through her adulthood, like, you really have a sense that, like, she's going to learn lessons in life. But, like, the Veda you meet in My Girl is the Veda that's going to exist decades on in her life. Exactly. You're like, she's probably going to date dudes that are at least 20 years older than her. Yeah. Um, but yeah. she's going to make mistakes, but she's going to have a lot of fun and also be darkly cynical about it. So yeah. it's me in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get too far into it, then let's engage with what is my girl about? What is the story of my girl, Kristen? Oh, gosh. So the story is about a young girl named Veda Saltenfuss, played by Anna Chlumsky, queen. Um, Inch, and-, and I I like almost I had to like take a breath when the movie started. I was like, oh, my God, introducing Anna yep. Chlumsky. Wow. The breakthrough role, the breakout role. Exactly. And I was very, very upset that she was not the Jessica Chastain of of the 1990s or something. I feel that, yeah, we needed far more movies with her in them. Absolutely. Um, but it's it's the, the 1970s, and she's a young girl that is a hypochondriac. Dad, I don't want to upset you, but my left breast is developing at a significantly faster rate than my right. It can only mean one thing, cancer. His best friend is Thomas J., played by Macaulay Culkin, a pre-fame Macaulay Culkin. So you don't get, like, the annoying Kevin McAllister stuff uh, (laughs) to him yet. We're going to Gray's Orchard to pick some peaches? No, I'm going home. Why? It's not dinner time yet. Dinner time? You're like a dog. You just go home to eat. Uh, And her dad runs a, a funeral parlor. Her dad is Dan Aykroyd. He runs a funeral home. And is incredibly hands off with his child about everything. Daddy, can I have thirty-five dollars? It's a lot of money for a little girl. It's for school. A summer writing class. Last month you wanted to play the violin. Then you wanted to be a ventriloquist. Dad. <laughs> I love this guy. <laughs> Dad. What? The money. Oh, maybe next summer. And things happen when he hires a makeup artist played by Jamie Lee Curtis. It is absolutely stunning Jamie Lee Curtis. How may I help you? I'm Shelley DeVoto. We spoke the other day regarding the makeup artist job. Oh, yes. It's still available, I hope. I think it's still available. It's still very shocking to me that she is in this movie. You watch this and you're like, oh, yeah, Dan Aykroyd's a big name. Yeah. You know. Macaulay Culkin's a big name. Jamie Lee. I want. I would love to sit at her feet and just like ask her, "What brought you to this project? You know, like know. how did this work out?" Um, but yeah, the 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 catalyst of 
a new woman in her family's life causes Veda to uh, have some some issues alongside a lot of other stuff that happens in a summer that is uh, fraught with tragedy at one point. Yeah, it is. It's it's a real like it's a it's a real capsule like coming of age story. It's I think it's like 1972. It's a small Pennsylvania town. And what you have is like this, you know, this this suburb perhaps of a large pennsylvania city you have you know the the family in the in the in the funeral home she they lost veda lost her mother at a very very young age she can't even she doesn't really have any own memory of her own memories of her and so like her life is colored by death and also by like like you said her father's very hands-off because like he's still living in mourning for his wife and he doesn't know how to raise a teenage girl and so it's just sort of he kind of keeps her on autopilot. It's the 70s. Kids go out and they ride bikes from when the sun comes up to the sun goes down and they come back for dinner and they do it again the next day. And we've met them on their summer vacation. So there's that, you know, sort of sense of freedom and sense of fun about it. But then you have these two characters in Veda Sultanfuss and Thomas J who are like kind of already a little too old for their age. Like yeah. they're they're old souls, these two. Exactly. One, it's one of those movies I think that's a great blending of nostalgia, mm. but also a contemporary quality. Because I watched this, this came out in uh what is it, 19, 1991. Um, but but it's it's a really interesting blend of nostalgia and contemporary qualities because it's it's set in uh, set in the seventies, but it was made in ninety one. And mm. as somebody who was an indoor girl for logistical reasons, you know, I didn't I didn't have the whole concept of being able to like go out on my bike and mm. go play in the street and, and stuff like that. You know, all of my activities were very structured and very inside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but my mom will tell me that like that was her childhood. You know, the fact that your parents were like, "Go outside. I don't want to see you for the next seven hours." There's something so cozy about its nostalgia like you were saying like that you know the the simpler times of like being able to ride your bike around everywhere and not worrying about your kid and having like Shelly lives in the camper van that she drives to work every day I love I love me like a vagabond that's allowed to be a vagabond like uh, you know what those how I always talk about those those halcyon days when you could be homeless but it was like charming um oh yeah well or just the fact that you know, Veda's a hypochondriac and she can go to the doctor just no, dude, whenever she wants. Super, <laughs> I, that, res- that hit me so hard watching that this time. Veda is in and out of the doctor's office constantly because she she's watching death come in and out of her house all the time. And when she learns about a new corpse that comes in she like sees their chart on the door she's very afraid of the body she doesn't want to go into the into the embalming area she sort of hides around the corner she doesn't want to be literally faced with it but like she starts kind of taking on the illnesses of the people that have come had that have died and and come through the come to the funeral home so she thinks she has prostate cancer she's sure she has a chicken bone stuck in her throat she's constantly at the doctor and i was like this little child is just walking in and out of the doctor's office maybe every single day getting free medical care whenever yeah. she wants. Exactly. Nobody's nobody's telling her that they think she's weird or anything. You know, now we know that, you know, doctors treat women as more hysterical than anything else. Yes. And her doctor is just like, well, you're here again today. Yeah. Um, you're still fine. <laughs> But, you know, feel free to come back tomorrow if you have more issues. We'll do a full workup. Don't worry about it, Veda. (laughs) Exactly. Well, And that's one of the things that as somebody who 
definitely had a lot of medical procedures in their life and, mm-hmm. and was at the doctor a lot. You know, my hypochondria developed a lot later in life. Okay. You know, as you start to become older and death becomes more of a like real thing. Right. You're yeah. Like, they're like that mole. Like, what is this mole? It's obviously skin cancer. So yeah. I've definitely had those moments where one of my favorite lines in this entire movie is in the opening where she looks at her dad and she says, Dad, my left breast is growing significantly larger than my right. It can only mean one thing. Cancer. cancer. I'm dying. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've said that a time or 12. <laughs> oh, God. it's it, And she just... Anna Chlumsky does such an incredible job in this performance. They're so she's it feels like it could only be an an introductory sort of performance, like because she was just enough of a not professional to just be a little girl. And like there are just the the perfect way that like when she's at the doctor for the millionth time in her life and he's like, Veda, you're perfectly healthy little girl. And she just looks back at his diplomas and goes, Dr. Welty, are you sure those are yours? There's just this little asshole tendency about her that is so genuine and so endearing. And her final words as she walks out the door, I'll just have to get a second opinion. Well, and so what was for you, what was, what was sort of, it was there a latch on moment for you and Veda? Was it that like, you know, I've got to get a second opinion. Like, when did you know that this person had just this preternatural connection to you? You know, the, the hypochondria starts it, but for me, my, my, my mom will point this out as a pure, it's, it's her love of, of her teacher, Griffin Dunn. Right. I, Griffin Dunn is the first person I ever loved in my life. Okay. Um, I have only told, I, I've kind of maybe told him as such when I did an interview with him like two years ago. <laughs> I was like, I became an English major because of you. Um, interpret that how you will. Right, um, right. But, but yeah, if, if you talk about like the first actor I ever crushed on hard, it was Griffin Dunn. And it was this movie. Um, and I, I understood both her love of like writing, even though it's kind of performative because she's really only doing it because he's teaching the class. Right, right. Um, but the fact that she she likes it and that there there is this weird little like writer's community of goofballs that she's yeah. surrounded by, um, which as you get steeped into the world of like journalism and writing, you're like, oh, that's everybody you meet. Yeah. You know, you find some version of it. Um, yeah, and the fact that she she definitely loved her a guy that that was never going to happen. Um, yeah. And, and the, the fact that she like experiences this heartbreak, she shoots her shot at the worst possible moment. And, right. and up, she's 11 and a half. Right. And it just ends up imploding. And I was like, oh, I think I, I think I connected to all of that as just being like, that's, that's me. That's going <laughs> to be my life. I'm going to love somebody that's like, way too old for me and tr- and I have um and you know it just and it's never going to go anywhere but like the fact that she is invested in this writing community of nerds mm-hmm. as somebody who read a lot as somebody who wrote a lot you know it just it, it struck me it got to me and it's mm-hmm. uh, something I've made a career off of so right right I thank her for that all right, we are going to take a quick break and when we get back Kristen is going to talk more about how Veda Sultanfuss has affected her not just in life, but in her work as well. Hey. 
Hello. I'm Pee Wee Herman. You might know me from TV, but I really want to be a DJ. It took some convincing, but KCRW finally agreed to give me an hour on the radio to play you some music with my friends. <laughs> anyway, tune in for one hour of the bestest, most funnest time you'll ever have. On the Pee Wee Herman Radio Hour, I am personally inviting you to tune your transistor radio in to hear me or go to KCRW.com. Duh. <laughs> It'll be available for the whole week from November 26th to December 3rd. So you can listen to it again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> The Pee Wee Herman Radio Hour was produced by Maximum Fun and can be streamed on KCRW.com until December 3rd. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm your host, Jordan Cruciola, and I am speaking to Kristen Lopez about Veda Sultanfuss, nominee for the all-time all-name squad from the movie My Girl. And now, Kristen, we've we've touched on this, like that that Ouroboros aspect <laughs> of Veda for you. You know, but what is what would you say is kind of, you know, what is the impact of, of this movie character sort of on on your life like talk about veda as like a part of the architecture of who you are you know i think i think as somebody who never has felt represented 100 percent, you know i get asked a lot about oh when was the first time you felt seen and the characters i pick always are non-disabled and i think there's a little disappointment especially from people asking me that question who are disabled because there is nobody that that looks like them. I was going to say, I mean, like, what are you supposed to say, though? Like, I, I mean, exactly. I, I, the disappointment is the fact of it. Like, it's the, exactly. It's not that, I don't find the disappointment to be that, like, oh, I can't believe you didn't pick a character in a wheelchair for us to talk about. Like Kristen. the lack it's of like, options. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I'm so sorry you didn't have a lot of fucking characters to pick that yeah. might have been more linear for you. Exactly, and I think with Veda. She's one of the few characters that I don't necessarily have to apologize for. You know, right, like, right, right, like right. you know, I, I talk about how much I, I love Molly Ringwald and 16 Candles. I'm like, but at the same time, you know, 16 Candles is one of those movies that treads in fantasy yeah. in the sense that, like, she gets the guy at the end. And, yeah. you know, I'm like growing up disabled, like. I know I ain't getting Jake Ryan as much as I would love to think that. I'm sure. like, Veda's, Veda's things are identifiable and attainable in, in so many ways. You know, mm -hmm. they, they feel steeped in a reality that I understand and that I can connect with, you know, growing up in a small town, growing up with a dad who didn't really have a lot of time for me, having mm -hmm. a best friend who's a boy yeah. who, you know, didn't really know like what to do with himself and was perpetually my, my best friend who just came to visit me, my Thomas J, you know, he's perpetually sickly, mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. know, so, so all of those things just feel more real, you know, I'm like that, that feels more like, like a character being seen because it's all of those things that are not necessarily having to do with my disability. They just feel like elements of myself as a person, which is what you really want. I mean, in the right. grand scheme of things. Well, and you know, I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot to unpack anything that you don't want to. And like, I don't want you to have to like explain being disabled to me, but I just like, you know, a thing I, I really hope to do with this conversation on this show is 
as important as the places that we see ourselves are the places that we don't. And it you can't have this kind of conversation without acknowledging the fact that most people don't have the luxury of having correct avatars for themselves on screen. Like, I don't want to assume that, like, oh, yeah, that was totally sufficient for you to have seen a character like Veda Sultanfus who did lack elemental things for you to connect to in your experience as, as a disabled person. But at the same time, I don't want to assume either that because a character was not disabled, they weren't a sufficient avatar for you either. And I guess I just I wanted to ask you about, like, do you is there like do you have this like burden of responsibility on you to like talk about the disabled character and create and make it perhaps more of a of a mirror for yourself than you've necessarily been able to to find in a one to one sense. I don't know if that, oh, does yes, that question I mean- makes sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. I mean, when you asked me to find a, a character, you know, for this this episode, I mean, my mind naturally gravitated to, I think, what a lot of people tend to expect is like, oh, you're going to pick a disabled character. Sure. And I was like, you know, I kind of had to think to myself, like, is that performative if I pick a disabled character that like, you know, doesn't necessarily 100% work with me, but it's disabled, you know, right. so you, you always have that, that back and forth, because the minute you're part of a marginalized group, you have to compartmentalize to enjoy right. film. Totally. Whether you're a disabled person, whether you're African American, whether you're LGBTQ, you know, we all know that these movies are not made 100% for us. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we've had decades of having to be like, I love elements of this character, but, you know, it doesn't work. I think with with Veda and My Girl especially, and, and even, you know, Molly from Booksmart when we were talking about doing her initially – there are elements of those characters that I think even without disability, you understand and you can can agree with. You know, I think the fact that Veda is someone who surrounds herself with death mm-hmm. and and has these issues with it. I mean, it gets me it gets that side of me that, you know, constantly has has had those discussions about like, okay, well, you're disabled. Does that mean you die earlier than everybody else? You right. know, like, you know, those those kind of tough questions that you don't necessarily want to ask yourself. It it makes you think of that in that way. Mm-hmm, you know, I think mm-hmm. what I loved about Booksmart um, and why I initially thought of Molly when we were talking about doing this is the fact that, you know, the emphasis on on weight and looks, you know, mm-hmm. that's a huge thing that I talk about nowadays. You know, when you look at the statistics of disabled women specifically mm-hmm. getting married and dating, you know, mm-hmm. they're pretty sad because, mm-hmm. you know, our society is so bounded on aesthetics and we right. only ever see disabled men. We don't see disabled women. That's a great and there's point. This, there's this whole discussion about like, well, that's because disabled women aren't hot, you know? So what mm-hmm. does that say if you're a disabled woman, you know, well, you know, where do you go with that? So mm-hmm. I think with, I think with my girl, it's a really good example of how you can take a character and even though she's not disabled, there is that a- ability to identify with a disabled audience mm-hmm. in a way that, and I think that, you know, had, had things been a bit more progressive, Maybe Veda could have been a disabled character and it would have had that that one extra layer. But I think that what works and make creates that universality that we all talk about mm-hmm. is that you can be a disabled person and be like, I don't have to compartmentalize as much as I usually do. And now you mentioned earlier, like, you know, you became an English major. And so, you know, it's I guess I I, I wanted to I want to hear from you about like you know, the ways that we have these people who sort of imprint on us. And it's like, did I become an English major because of Veda Sultfus? I couldn't say I didn't. Like, I guess I I just sort of wanted to hear about, like, 
when you have that character and you're like, oh, this person makes so much sense to me. And then you have kind of like a model of possibility. Like, how does how does having a formative character like her affect things like that you go to later on in your work, like with your inner Veda Sultan Fuzz? Yeah, I mean, you know, the that whole moment where she goes to the class for the first time, she's the youngest person there. Oh, my God. You amazing. Know, I'm like, I felt that I felt that awkwardness because, you know, when you're when you're a disabled girl who's incredibly short, you know, mm. you you go right back to that, like, first day of school, like, nobody sees me, literally. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know these people. So I definitely, I felt that. Like, I especially when I got to college and you're like, this is proof that you're an adult now, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, the normal rules of being a teen don't apply anymore. You're supposed to be cool. You're supposed to be formed. You're supposed to yeah. have opinions. <laughs> um, and, and that doesn't always uh, come through. You know, I will say I, I joke with people. I'm like, the greatest lie this movie ever told is that English teachers are hot. Um, <laughs> I never had a hot English teacher in my entire life. And it always made me very, very upset that that, that was going to happen. Um, but yeah, I, I never got a hot English teacher in my life. So Griffin Dunn never came for me. I was I was always very upset by the <laughs> lies. And that's something that continues in a lot of other movies, too. Yeah. Like English teachers are, are categorically hot men in, uh, in movies. <laughs> that's a heinous lie. I absolutely love it when she comes in at the end. And it, it was such like it felt like such a snapshot of like, you know, hypothetical 1972 of when she comes into the class. It seems like for the final time, like she's mourning Thomas J. And she has finally brought, like, a piece of writing that's really personal to her. And when she comes in, nobody in the class is expecting her. And suddenly, all like, the you know, Griffin Dunn, the teacher, he's like, Veda, you know, and everybody turns around and sees her in the classroom. And then all of these, like, 20-something, 30-something yeah. people are just giving this 11-and-a-half-year-old girl these really big hugs. Yeah. And I was like, this this, feel, this feels like a moment out of time right now. I love yeah. the hippie guy. We missed you, man. I love I love when they do the little like um vibe circle or whatever they're <laughs> yeah. doing about their auras. One of the moments that I still I still think of moments where I'm like, yeah, where she's the guy the guy's telling her, feel my aura. And yeah. she says, I don't think I'm allowed to. <laughs> I I've been in many a situation where like oh some God. you're like, I don't think I should be touching you know that that looks like that's something I should probably back away from slowly <laughs> I don't and just allow to do that. You know exactly. I don't, I don't think that's safe. You know, especially oh, with like God. COVID too. I've had many of Veda Saltonfus moment now with like COVID, where I'm like, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. I'm just gonna go away now. Yeah, I I loved this when I was a kid, but I'm watching now, being like, no, that's the right reaction. Like, no, I'm still with. I'm Veda had it right. At eleven something years old, I she she had the right point of view on this situation. Exactly, <laughs> down to telling a doctor who is not necessarily taking her medical issues seriously. Are you sure those are yours? And questioning yeah. his credentials, it was like, yes, Beta, you stand up for women who are disenfranchised by the medical system. Exactly. <laughs> when I think it's as somebody who is surrounded by death all the time in this movie as she is. You know, the fact that she's able to, up to a certain point, has been able to deal with it as well as she does. You know, the movie opens with her taking kids on a tour of this for money and promising them a corpse. And, you know, the fact that uh, the the one kid, I love the one kid who gets so indignant, you know, about (laughs) I want my money back. Yeah, I want Um, my money back. (laughs) I want my money back. You know, and I think that that's that's something, too, that as I've I've gotten older, I love how she deals with 
you know, the fact that her grandmother is got dementia, she's yeah. not really there anymore. You yeah. know, the fact that her her mom is dead, but she's surrounded by death and dying. You know, I I I've told uh, you know, I've told people before, you know, I'm like death really became something that I came to late in mm-hmm. life. You know, my, my, my grandfather died when I was, you know, 18. Mm-hmm. And that was the first person I knew that ever died that was close to me that had an effect on me. And that caused me to go down like a spiral of like, well, what does that all mean? You yeah. know, what happens to yeah. me when I die? You know? And so watching this movie where she's, she, it's perme it permeates her life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's also, a nice comforting, you know, and, and as much as one can be comforted by the concept, the, the existential, you know, concept of, of death. I'm like the movie, she, she treats it in a way that is probably about as good as any of us can ever hope to, to deal with it. Right. Like, and, and, and even down to the point where like, I so like the scene is so wrenching when it's the funeral for Thomas J and she, she at first is avoidant. And then when she comes into the she comes into the the parlor where they're having the funeral and she just you know she goes up to the casket and she holds like she leans over his body and she's saying like one go tree climbing thomas j his face hurts and where is his glasses he can't see without his glasses put his glasses on put on his glasses she's sort of beckoning him to come back and seeing like the contrast between the very quiet polite mourners which includes like his parents and her and like she's you know they're they're kind of like pulling her away from the body and like you know baby he's not coming back he's gone and there is this sort of like willing her to embrace this antiseptic way of mourning where yeah. it actually feels like this outburst this childlike outburst and con- confrontation with her feelings feels almost better to me like it feels almost more right to watch a, an unrestrained kid have to deal with this cataclysmic moment this lesson of grief in their life that before they are told and formed to handle things with like a stiff upper lip and to button in the feelings like everybody else in the room is it's like no let her scream let her cry yeah. let her plead with him to come back and yeah i just think i i like watching that now it's like no, I kind of think the kid had it right. Like, yeah. I'm with the kid on this one. Exactly. Well, and, and, you know, it's kind of on Dan Aykroyd's character at that point because he's willingly, like, you know, the the child-sized coffins have come in. She's asked him that question. Yes. Like, is that for a kid? He's like, oh, no, it's just short people. Short really people. short people. And I was like, oh, are we going to say it's disabled people? Because I'm going to hear you say, like, it's a disabled thing, Dan Aykroyd. Right. Not, that also doesn't help. Um, you know, so, and, and I think that that's why, you know, the Thomas J. Beta plotline, you know, my, my best friend since I've been in eighth grade is a boy um, who is very sickly and, mm. you know, always has always has his, I, I, I joke, his Thomas J. tendencies and that he, <laughs> you know, can't eat certain things, can't yep. do certain things. Um, thankfully, he is still alive and well. Uh, but but, you know, we joke about how like. That that's him to a T. I'm like, so I don't know if I I picked you because you know we have a lot in common, or just I needed a I needed a Thomas J to complete my 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 Veda blending, yeah, to but build, to build out the fantasy. But I do appreciate at the end of the movie that they don't give her another Thomas J mm-hmm. in the sense that you, she picks a girl. You yeah, know, she's Judy. She is Judy, uh, who's in, you know incredibly nice and and sweet. You know, it's different. But it's it's worthwhile. You know, I, I love that the movie doesn't give her 
uh, an easy fix in like, well, here's another Thomas J. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's also a boy. It's the same kind of concept. Like, we give her something different and be like, okay, well, that that time in your life is done. Like, let's this is a new chapter. Mm-hmm. Try something different and see see where that takes you and what happens then. And now we are going to take another quick break. But when we get back, we are going to talk about what Kristen thinks happened to Veda after the events of My Girl. I know there's a sequel. Put that out of your mind. So stay tuned. I'm Judge John Hodgman. And I'm Bailiff Jesse Thorne. Ten years ago, I came on Jordan Jesse Go and judged my first dispute. Is chili a soup? It's a stew, obviously. The judge has dispensed a decade of justice. He's the one person wise enough to answer the really important questions. Like, should you hire a mime to perform at your own funeral? After they cry, I want them to laugh. Do you really need a tank full of jellyfish in your den? They smell like living creatures decaying. (laughs) Only if they are decaying. Yeah, which they will be. Real people, real justice, real comedy. Winner of the Webby Award for Best Comedy Podcast. The Judge John Hodgman Podcast, every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. I'm your host, Jordan Cruciola, and I am speaking to Kristen Lopez about Veda Sultanfus from My Girl. And Kristen, the aspect of the conversation that I want to get into now with you is the aftermath of this character on your life. Um, You know, we've talked about the point of origin with Veda. And then, like, how is your relationship to this character sort of like one of those things where, like, where you revisit it now? Do you look at that character as, like, representative of of a time? And I think we've touched on this a bit now already, but representative of you at a time? Or do you see this as, like, wildly, like, still representative, like, of, of you know, like, your DNA as a as an individual now? Oh, definitely my my DNA. Like, okay. it's, okay. it's, again, I, I, it's a character that I think because she's set in a time already, you know, there, it's hard to feel this movie is dated outside of the fact that it takes place in the 1970s. Yeah, so, there's that there's that wonderful epilogue where she's like, things are getting better now. Like, me and Judy have homeroom together and the Republican National Commi- Committee just re-elected, ju- re-elected Mr. Nixon as their nominee. It's like, That's gonna everything's out looking well. up, Beta. We've got Nixon coming back in 74. Exactly. Well, I think that that's the thing that I love about this movie's ending. You know, the, the 1970s, we know now, you know, we're very fraught with geopolitical issues and all sorts of things that, you know, as a child, you're like, I don't remember. And it's, <laughs> it's a lot like how I you know, not to date myself, but I talked to about the 90s with my little brother who missed the 90s. You know, I'm like, we, you know, you look now and you're like, the 90s had a lot of stuff that happened that was like <laughs> crazy. I'm like, me? Nope. I just remember Hanson, Spice Girls, That's like right. Nickelodeon. I'm like, the 90s were the best decade ever. You know, exactly. It's, and I don't know if any other movie really captures that house, that sense of 
the halcyon time, you know, where right. you're like, you know, because you look at other movies that kind of we see it now with the 80s, right? You know, mm-hmm. men. Boy, men do we see it with the 80s. My God. And men mythologize the 80s so much that it almost feels like it's not real at this point. You're yeah, like, you're really right. I don't right. really understand anything about the 80s, you know, unless I was a white guy you know, who lived through it. I'm like, I think my girl does a really great job of really capturing like, no, it's not about the era. It's Mm -hmm. about that sense of being a child and feeling like the year you're living in is the best decade ever. And because you didn't have anything to worry about, you know, it's the moments, not to sound trite, but it's the moments that define you type of thing. And we, we teased on this a bit earlier, uh, the idea of future Veda, what is your sort of fanfic visualization of grown up Veda? Where does she go in the eyes, in the mind's eye of Kristen Lopez? Oh gosh, you know, and I've, again, I've, factory in the sequel if you want or not. That's fine. No, um, I, you know, I feel bad. I've never seen the sequel all the way through. I think okay. because the first movie is so special that I've I've seen bits of it, and I'm just like, no, the magic's. Magic's gone. Maybe it was the fact that Griffin Dunn wasn't in it. I don't know. Um, Listen, you know that, there were, it was a lot of moving parts worked together to make my girl a basically perfect experience. So I exactly. Hear you. So, but my my mom and I have talked in depth about where I think Veda. Veda oh wow! Would go. Oh good. Um. So so I I've come up with this whole like alternative backstory for her. But essentially, after after she did find a good therapist, um, I'm hoping in the the 80s um, or maybe the 90s. I think she came to therapy late in life um so she she probably had to unpack a lot of baggage about her parents and and all of that but i would love to think that she kept on writing um and maybe became like a an adjunct professor somewhere Mm, um okay yes and and that yeah she she reunited with mr bixler who is now a divorcee and it's not as creepy of an age difference as it once was (laughs) And um, they did finally live happily ever after. So her, she gets Mr. Bixler in the end, huh? Always, yes. Oh, she should, amazing. I, I mean, who doesn't want Griffin Dunn now? He still got it. So amazing. I'm all for that. So that's my dream, my dream sequel. Yeah, I and I, I like, like, I, I do, I, I can very clearly, I can very clearly see her as an adult. Like, I feel like yeah. I could meet. Veda Sultanfuss and she would I can like imagine that individual and and, like having a conversation with her yeah exactly she's still she's still probably a hypochondriac but she has like a degree now so she probably self-diagnoses herself a lot um you know and other people around her Veda absolutely insufferably diagnoses people 100 percent I feel like she's telling everybody else that they definitely have cancer and they should look (laughs) into that um you know and I'd like to think that she has friends of all stripes you know at this point um you know so so she's she's branched out. She's yeah, found there's a future in which like her and Bixler live in like Berkeley. And right, they, exactly. Like, they, they live in Berkeley. Maybe she got a teaching job there. Yeah. He's obviously and, and old teaching and retired. Money, yeah. Their teaching money still allows them to buy a house. Yeah, because like they got houses. a place in like they got a place in like, you know, early on before the tech yeah. bubble. And so maybe he already lived there. That's how we found her. He's had a house. She moved into yeah. it. So they they live in this like wonderful old craftsman in the Bay Area. Yeah, they exactly. have like this, you know, these very tasteful dinner parties with very intelligent, 
you know, diverse collection of people. I can see this. I can see I this. I can see, I can see all of this. Okay. I don't necessarily want to give them children because I feel like childbirth would just freak her out. So, yeah, I think you know. you're right about that. I don't think they is a mom. I don't think they is yeah, a mom no, type. No. I mean, I could see them having, you know, a lot of a lot of animals. Uh, you know, she had a goldfish, okay, yeah, that she cared a lot she's about. Very in the movie. empathetic. Yeah. So so yeah, I, I feel that's I feel that's their life. But I feel like she's still, you know, current and awkward, like they're they're cool, but like She's still unpacking a lot of that stuff. In yeah, therapy, she's not done with so, that relationship yet. Yeah, no, no. So that's uh, that's where I see them. I want this, um, you know, Holly. If Hollywood is listening, just an amorphous Hollywood. Yeah, I'm, an I'm amorphous Hollywood. I'm available for for all of this. So well. I think that brings us to the end of of our discussion here. But is there anything before you leave you would like to share with people or let them know? Um, my girl is awesome. So watch yes. it. Uh, I think it's on HBO Max, so you can you can enjoy it for uh, the price of your subscription. Excellent. Um, <laughs> but if you want to get my my thoughts on uh, Griffin Dunn, which I do tweet now and then, um, you can find them over on Twitter at journeys underscore film. And I also do my podcast, Ticklish Business, uh, which is wherever you get your podcasts. We also work on the support of patrons. So we have mm. a Patreon, patreon.com slash Ticklish Biz. And uh, we're doing a lot of true crime L.A summer movies Ooh. uh this this yeah so that's we did, a great uh, we, category we did uh we did wonderland we're gonna do some black dahlia stuff we're gonna have look at some manson movies including the tarantino so it's uh it's gonna be fun so definitely check us out if you like my ramblings on movies <laughs> well thank you so much Kristen, for joining us today and for bringing us veda sultan anytime jordan I, I look forward to talking about more characters soon <laughs> thank you that was Kristen lopez Please check out her work on IndieWire. Um, why would you miss it? Why would you want to miss it after that wonderful conversation? But before we fully end, I have one quick thing to talk about before I go. It's the movie Spencer. And in particular, I mean, the raves about Kristen Stewart's performance. She's fucking transcendent. But the thing I want to bring up specifically in regards to Sally Hawkins' performance in this film, she plays the royal dresser of Diana. And she has been summoned to this Christmas retreat because, well, how how could one expect to get dressed? How could a princess expect to get dressed without a dresser in her room uh, coordinating all of her clothes and putting them on her body for her? And she happens to be, Sally's character happens to be, it seems like the best, kind of the the best or only friend of this particular fictionalized version, Kristen Stewart's Princess Diana. And they have this beautiful scene together on a beach. It's that scene from the trailer where, you know, Sally Hawkins tells her, you know, they know everything. The royal family, they know everything. And Kristen Stewart gives her that very jaw-forward, perfect Kristen response and is like, they don't. They know everything. They don't. But that's not the point. The point is Sally Hawkins is trying to comfort her and and she's been sent to say that basically uh, the royals are worried about you and they want you to get institutionalized. They think you need professional help because they think you're cracking up. And what Sally basically tells her is like, fuck them. What you need is 
spontaneity in your life. What you need is love. Fuck doctors. And there's this wonderful moment. And since this is a podcast about feeling seen, about having a mirror to to look at yourself in and see that face staring back, um, I leaned over, little tiny, tiny digression. I leaned over to a dear friend of mine who I was seeing this movie with when it started and just with this clear bond between um, this like, you know, emotional anchor that Sally's character is for for Diana. I looked over at my friend and I was like, oh, that would totally be me in reference to to Sally Hawkins. And he laughed and he was like, it absolutely would be you. And then this moment on the beach comes and she tells Diana, you know, that she is she is loved and she knows this because she loves her. She tells her, you know, I'm in love with you. Yes, in that way. And Diana is so you know, she's happy, but she's shocked and taken aback. She's she's flattered, but doesn't quite know what to do with it and and trying to process it so quickly. And and Sally Hawkins character says to her, she's like, I know you don't feel the same way. It's it's OK. I'm, I'm a grown up. It's all right. And then Diana grabs her hand. They, they, they sit with one another. She takes her hand. And there's just so much love between the two of them. And even though Diana cannot reciprocate the romantic love that Sally's character feels for her, there's just such a beautiful vulnerability and intimacy to the moment and this comfort that is so immediately established between two people of just sharing their feelings for one another and allowing the definition of intimacy in that moment to broaden out beyond the rigid confines of what is so often presented to us in our fiction, our film and television. Things are getting better now, but what is so traditionally presented to us uh, is that romantic love is the pinnacle of love. A sexual relationship is the pinnacle of love as a person on the asexual spectrum. That's not my reality. Uh, the, the pinnacle of love in my life, and it is every bit, it exists tantamount to any romantic love, I will inform you now, is those my friendships, but my friendships are my love stories. And even though the the shades of love that I feel for my people might take on different hues than the ones they have for me, they exist in conversation with one another. They are complementary to one another. And just the beautiful openness in that moment and the comfort of sharing that kind of honest love for another person and being able to greet it with an open mind and embrace the joy of it, even if you're not exactly on the same page as another person, recognizing that the page that they're on is equal in value to your own. I just, I was over the moon. I, I looked over at my friend again and I was like, wow, <laughs> turns out I am <laughs> Sally Hawkins character. And, uh, you know, for my money, for for what I'm always trying to do and, and the way that I see it most potently affected in, you know, the great heart song movies that I have, like Jennifer's Body and, and, and particularly Promising Young Woman of late, expanding the definition of sort of what true love and companionship looks like in your life to embrace things beyond the confines of sort of our sexual and non-sexual binaries. That is not something I often get to see so joyfully and unselfconsciously embodied on screen, and I certainly didn't expect it um, in this specific movie I was watching, but that it that it gave me that small love story between these two women that wasn't a 
that wasn't a, a love story about doomed lesbians. <laughs> it wasn't like a tragic gay period piece, but in fact, the queerness of it and the exchange of of love and care between these two women was in fact one of, if not the most joyful points of the entire movie was such a celebration of a different kind of love uh, than we normally see. And that meant so much to me. And that is our show for today. You can go follow us on Twitter at feeling scene pod or join our Facebook group at www.facebook.com slash groups slash feeling scene pod. And you can also send us an email at feeling scene at maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jorcrew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.